This message first aired on the radio on March 10, 2004. We're continuing in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, and we have a portion of Scripture before us today that is a very important portion. It's a very interesting portion, and it's a portion we're going to spend a fair amount of time on. We are in 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. We touched on 12 a little bit last time, and we're going to take up some of these uh, very deep things that we find here in this passage. We contextualize ourselves again to remember that the apostle has just completed a comparison of the work of the, the ministry of the spirit compared to the ministry of the law in the life of the hearer. And the ministry of the law, of course, brought in condemnation, but it was glorious. The ministration of the law was glorious. In fact, the glory of the Lord was revealed in many ways in the giving of the law. Uh, the Lord's power was revealed as the law was given in Exodus chapter 20, wherein Mount Sinai began to quake and burn with fire and a dense smoke, to the point where Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. The sound of a siren, a long trumpet was blasting, the Lord showing his great power, and the people all fearing God uh, so much said, Moses, you go talk to him. We can't hear uh, these things as the Lord gave the ten words of the Ten Commandments to them aloud. And so Moses went up into a mountain, into Mount Sinai, and communed with the Lord there, and received the commandments written on tables of stone. Of course, he went back and got them again when he came down and found the children of Israel rebelling. But uh, in this, we have uh, more glorious the work of the Spirit in this present time and at the time of the Corinthian epistle. We had the ministry of the Spirit, which was even more glorious. And so we went through the arguments of how much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit in the lives of the believer even today, and we'll just say today, uh, then the law is also to uh, one who hears it. So with that being said, uh, for example, in verse 11, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. And he gave several reasons why it's more glorious, not the least of which, but the last of which is because the ministration of the Spirit is going to last forever, whereas the ministry of the law has been completed in Christ. So now we see verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Now here, plainness of speech, this doesn't just have to do with directness of speech. In fact, it has to do with liberty of speech. It has to do with freedom of speech. It has to do, in fact, this word translated also boldness. We have great boldness. Seeing we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Now, boldness, or paresia, is not something to, that is easily come by. This is something that the apostles prayed for. This is something the early church prayed that we would have, that, that the ministry would go out not only in fact, but in great boldness. Boldness is the liber is freedom. It's, it's translated freedom of speech, for example, in Hebrews chapter 13, because it's not a freedom that is given or granted from the outside. It is a freedom that comes out from the inside as we gain free expression of the thoughts of God according to the Word of God. And you see this from time to time. Certainly Stephen had great boldness or freedom of speech 
uh, within himself, freeness of speech within himself. And it was very bold, though it cost him his life. The Apostle Paul, very bold in his first so-called missionary journey. And when the Apostle was in Iconium, he had great boldness of speech, great freedom of speech, as he gave a long dissertation when asked if he had anything to exhort the Jewish listeners there. Uh, We see occasions of great freedom of speech, great boldness of speech, and the Apostle here teaches that the ministry is marked by boldness when we have such hope, such hope. Of course, hope is not a backward-looking thing. Hope is a forward-looking thing, and we're going to take up some of that discussion just now. We look at Romans chapter 5, for example, and we see what I like to call an equation for hope, an equation for hope. Look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have introduction by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We are introduced into standing grace uh, by faith, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When we have our faith, we look backwards and we see the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for our sins, and we are justified in that one great work. That's a backward look, being justified by faith. Here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, This is now our standing. This is now we stand in grace in a justified condition, being justified by faith. So here we have peace with God. Now, having peace with God is a little bit different than having the peace of God. We can also have that, so that's a a plus. But peace with God means that we have made our peace with God. We have uh, become justified, and God has now approved of us. He has declared us righteous through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we have an introduction by faith into this standing grace, or grace wherein we stand. And from there, from standing in grace, we rejoice in hope of God's glory. Now that is, as it were, we get turned around. We look back, we find our peace with God, and now we're standing in grace, and God changes our perspective, and he turns us around, and we now look forward, and we look backward for our justification, we look forward with our hope for the glory of God. And therefore, because we're looking forward, because we realize the fruit of the Christian life before us, because we realize uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins with a future purpose in mind, and not simply because of our sins, but for our sins, that he might lead many sons to glory, we now have a hope. And so we're turned around and we look forward. We are forward-looking. We'll look at that in a minute, why it says what it says in the book of Hebrews regarding this. But here's our equation for hope. It says, not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Now here is what we do. We have immediately in the Christian life, we have tribulations. This is the thlipsis that the apostle told the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant about. We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience. So here, tribulation, as we go through them in faith, we become patient. And patience works experience. So now we become experienced. We become experienced in the way of the cross. And experience works hope. And so there we have it. We have hope. 
and hope does not make ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, who is given to us. Now, here's what we have. We have faith, working hope, which works love. We have faith leading to hope, which leads to love. And, of course, faith works by love. So, here we have the equation to hope. This is corresponding to the book of Hebrews. So, we'll also look for a moment at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, something we need to keep in mind. But let's remember that this verse starts with now. Now. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now. When, when people quote it, they say, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But actually, the verse starts with, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now that we are justified, now that we have trusted in Jesus Christ, now faith is the substantiation of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And these unseen things are not invisible material things. Uh, these things unseen are not, this is not the context of the book of Hebrews, is not about stuff, it's about time. And it is, as it were, a moving set of frames. Just like moving pictures work, it's as a set of frames. Here it is, the evidence of things not yet seen. But these frames will come into focus in due time. And what is it now? Faith is the substance of those things hoped for, or of that time hoped for. And it is the evidence of the time not yet seen. So, of course, this now having to do with the prophetic writings, the character of the Word of God. After all, faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. And so here we see the hope that is wrought in the believer, and this is what the Apostle is urging us to consider in verse 12 of Second Corinthians 3, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great boldness. We can be bold about the faith that we have in Christ. Corresponding also to that hope, we look at Hebrews chapter 12, where we read, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily does beset us, that's unbelief, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Well, this is now a race that we run. We don't run a race to be saved. We run a race, and we run it lawfully against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, we run a race to qualify for that great accolade that our Lord Jesus Christ will promise to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, where we will not be ashamed, but indeed, instead of being ashamed, what will we have at the judgment seat of Christ? The word is boldness, parousia. We can be bold today because we have a great hope that tomorrow at the judgment seat of Christ we will also be bold and not ashamed of him and not ashamed of ourselves at his coming. Verse 2 of Hebrews 12, looking or fixing our attention, looking, we have a great cloud of witnesses, but here it says looking away from them, looking away from those that watch, uh, looking away from those who have gone before, or looking away from the attention fixed upon ourselves, and instead looking away unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, with the emphasis here being finisher, finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross. Now he didn't he didn't en- he didn't endure the cross with no hope and he did not endure the cross with no joy. This corresponds again 2 Corinthians 3. Here he says the apostle says I want to be a helper of your joy and the helper of your joy is that we have a hope and our joy is found in our hope. You cannot rejoice in the cross. You can also you can only endure the cross by rejoicing in what's on the other side of it, as the Lord Jesus did, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He put up with the cross. He was patient with the cross. You see, here was the thlipsis, and he patiently endured it, which worked experience, and of course experience, hope, and so forth, and despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we look to him and see, well, he endured the cross, and he came out triumphant. Of course, he always triumphs. And we now see that he is our finisher, as well as our author or inaugurator of our faith. For consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So now, let me just talk for a couple of minutes about the progress of doctrine that the Scripture gives to us because sometimes we may mistake the historicity of the writing of the Scripture for the way that the Scriptures have been put together. We're studying 2 Corinthians. We just completed studying 1 Corinthians. Those followed historically in writing within about uh, maybe nine months of each other. But these two epistles, the way that the canon of Scripture is arranged, follow the book of Romans. But they most likely preceded it in the order in which it's written. It's very possible also that Hebrews preceded these uh, epistles in the way that it was written. Nevertheless, God has compacted his book together so that progressive doctrine will reach us correctly. The books are in the order that they are. One of the most universal things that you find with the texts of Scripture is the order of the books that we frequently refer to, erroneously, as the New Testament. This apostle's uh, doctrine, these writings, in almost every case of the preserved texts, you'll find the epistles following after the book of Acts, which follow after the Gospels, and they're in this order. Now, God has placed them in this order for us so that we would have a progression of doctrine that suits us to live the Christian life. So here we find the book of Romans setting forth our standing, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians talking about our practices, book of Galatians correcting our errors, the epistle to the Ephesians adding more doctrine, disclosing to us the apex of truth of the church which is his body, Philippians and Colossians now doing very similarly what Corinthians and Galatians do for the book of Romans which is to certify to us our practices and to correct our doctrinal mistakes and then we have the idyllic church uh, the idyllic church life Not here we have the problematic church life in the Corinthian church we have the idyllic church life in first and second Thessalonians and that's why we're taking up these nine epistles we're attempting to take it up as a single piece But let me say that doctrine progresses through the New Testament writings. Uh, We have seed truths in the gospel. Those are not permanent truths in most cases, many cases. They're seed truths. They're distilled into the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows a development of doctrine and a development of circumstances such that these nine epistles now put us in place. Then we have the pastorals, which correct us and show us the problems that we're going to face. 
And then we have this book of Hebrews, which is such a marvelous book about our hope in walking according to faith uh, in a light of the judgment seat of Christ so that we don't fail in our Christian lives. Friends, we have a wonderful book on our hands. That's why here at BibleStudy.net, we want to help you enjoy the Scriptures. That's one of our great hopes, is that you'll enjoy the Bible. I'm getting excited. We've got a few more good verses here to look at today. I'll be back in one minute. I'm John Malone, and you're listening to BibleStudy.net. Well, we're now coming to the 13th verses and those that follow in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I trust we have a good context from which to understand these next several verses and we're going to spend a little time on them as well but let's just read he says we have great boldness of speech but not as Moses in other words it's different than as Moses was now here's another detailed comparison to the old covenant the ministry of the new is very different in fact it's exactly different in certain aspects to the old and here it says and not as Moses verse 13 which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished but their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ well now we have really a complex verse of scripture to take apart here a couple of verses 13 and 14 and in order to do it well I think or even to do it reasonably well we have to look back at the Old Testament and see what reference we're talking about here so this is a reference taken out of Exodus the 34th chapter where Moses came down from the mountain having received the law at Mount Sinai so we'll look at Exodus chapter 34 and we see in verse well verse 27 the Lord said unto Moses write thou these words for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel and so here we see the Lord calling what he gave Moses at Mount Sinai a covenant of course this the old covenant and here it is now verse 28 as it recapitulates what happened and he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights he did neither eat bread nor drink water now you say well maybe somebody cannot eat bread for 40 days and live I assure you no problem you can go without eating 40 days a person can go that long and live very well actually feel very good at the end of that but not drinking water four days and you need water so this is miraculous care of Moses he may be in a suspended state of care and bliss with the Lord of course we see that other remarkable things happen so no small thing he didn't need water because other remarkable things happened to him and here it is verse 29 well here it says he didn't eat drink bread or drink water the end of verse 28 Exodus 34 and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments so here we have the words of the Ten Commandments written on the tables of stone and these now are the ones referenced in second Corinthians chapter 3 these tables and it came to pass verse 29 it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses hand when he came down from the mount that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he that is God talked with him now here Moses looked at God and the effect on Moses was to make his face to shine 
Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That is, God spoke to Moses face to face. What he told Moses is, I will speak to you face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is what happened up in the mountain. And what happened to Moses? He was changed. He was changed. His face radiated the glory of God. That's what happened to him. The problem with it is that that radiated glory did not stick. It faded away. And Moses didn't realize that that had happened. Verse 30 of Exodus 34. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, or radiated, and they were afraid to come near him. They were afraid to come near him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spoke unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face, that it shone or radiated a light. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him, that is God. So here now we see this whole idea of Moses and his face shining. When he spoke with God, his face would shine. Then he would cover that when he spoke with the children of Israel so that they did not steadfastly look upon the glory of Moses, which, by the way, faded. Otherwise, we wouldn't see him taking the veil off, getting his face to shine again, putting his veil on, and so forth. Now, let me just say, we don't have the problem Moses had. Now, let's come back here. I think we're in a position that, with an understanding like that, we're in something of a position to understand what this means in verses 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians 3. It says, for us, it's not, or for, and for the Corinthians, of course, and us, it is not like Moses. Now, not only, not only is it not like the children of Israel, who did not look upon the glory of the Lord, but it's not like Moses. We don't have Moses' problem who put a veil over his face in order that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So in other words, uh, they could not, they did not steadfastly look upon the thing which is being done away with, that is the law. This is the effect of the law. The ministration of death was glorious, but it was a passing glory. And thank God it's a passing glory. But thank God that the ministration of death is replaced with the ministration of life. I don't understand people who want to practice the law today. Uh, they're such their own enemies. It is the ministration of death. We have quite a number of uh, Christian people who want to celebrate the feasts and who want to do a little piece of the law. And we'll get to when we get to the book of Galatians, let me tell you, what are you what are you trying to do to yourselves? Don't you know what the law says? It is the ministration of death. The, yes, it's glorious. Yes, it's attractive. But it ministers death to you. You don't live up to it. Why would anybody want this? Well, we're a perverse bunch. We'll see how perverse uh, we are and how much against ourselves we are when we finish here Second Americans. Oh, Second Corinthians. Well, 
Here it says that the children of Israel uh, did not look steadfastly on that which is abolished. And, of course, Moses had the experience of shining, fading, shining, fading, not only in Mount Sinai, but when he went into the tabernacle to commune with the Lord. Uh, Now verse 14. Here, look at this very closely. But their minds were blinded. Their minds were blinded. These people had hardened hearts. Their hearts were hardened. That's what this really says. Their thoughts became hardened. Their thoughts became hard in this experience. Until this day remains the same veil, not taken away. Actually, we will read it. We'll read it properly here. Verse 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, in the reading of the Old Testament, the veil still is untaken away. And, and that's an amazing thing. We see that with the nation of Israel, in the reading of the Old Covenant, the veil still remains on their face. That's what this is about. This is about the condition of the nation of Israel. And the condition is that the veil has still not been taken away for them. Now, in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the marvelous and miraculous things that happened was the veil of the temple was ripped in half, uh, top to bottom. Of course, they went, uh, the the children of Israel stitched that back up until the Lord removed their temple, or they, they made some accommodation to try to hide the fact that the veil had been rent, an entrance into the most holy place had been made by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to this very day, the condition of the nation of Israel is that the veil is still untaken away. There's still a veil, and it's over their hearts. Verse 15, But even unto this day, 2 Corinthians 3.15, When Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Now, I don't know why it is, that a child of God would go to some Jewish teacher who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and think that he can learn something about the true meaning of the Old Testament writings. Not, I don't mean just getting language help, but I mean to get some kind of true sense of the Old Testament writings when there is a veil upon that man's heart. When his thoughts are blinded, when his mind is covered up with a veil that doesn't let him see clearly what the scriptures teach. Here it says, But unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. Now this has to do, by the way, interesting word here, veil taken away. This is the apocalypsis, the unveiling. This is the apocalypse. In fact, the book of the Revelation, or the book of the unveiling, or the book of the apocalypse, has to do with unveiling Jesus Christ to the whole rest of the world. Of course, he's not veiled to us, but the Lord Jesus Christ is veiled to the Jew and to the Gentile today, except that they have faith in his word and believe in him. And there's a day coming when faith will become sight, and the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed for who he is, the veil being taken away, or the apocalypsis. Well, here it says that today the veil is anacalypto. Uh, that is to say, it is not anacalypto. It, the veil is not taken away at this point. But nevertheless, verse 16, when it, well, what's it, shall turn to the Lord? Well, the veil's upon their heart, in the heart of Israel. 
So when the heart of Israel returns to the Lord, that's the it here, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Verse 16, this now has to do with the unveiling or the taking away of the veil. And that will happen when Israel's heart turns to the Lord. Well, when will Israel's heart turn to the Lord? That's in a time yet coming. Now, we find that very correspondence in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. We see this great mystery concerning Israel. And it's a mystery. This is not something that everybody knows about. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is no mystery. It's right out there. But there is a mystery, the partial temporary blindness of Israel. And he's referencing that here in Second Corinthians. He's not fully disclosing it. As I say, historically, this letter written before the book of Romans by almost every account or by every inference of the scripture, I believe that it was written before the book of Romans. But we have the book of Romans put in front of this so that doctrinally we would understand the mystery of the partial and temporary blindness of Israel. And now, in order to understand that this was prophesied and that this is no surprise to anyone, Let's look at the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah, a so-called minor prophet, not minor in God's sight, just maybe we should call them the, the briefer prophets. Uh, uh, this now among the briefer, the 12 briefer prophets, the least brief of the prophetic writings, the book of Zechariah. And we will read this scripture, Zechariah chapter 12, verse Eight. This is about a future day, and it says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, and as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And that's elsewhere in Scripture. We find a coalition of nations in the Japhethite, rebellion against God, a group of nations together with some Hamite nations and even a Shemite nation will come against Jerusalem and the Lord will destroy those nations in that day and I will pour upon the house of David, verse 10, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now this is uh, the day that the veil's taken away and all Israel will mourn for our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll look upon me whom they have pierced. Now in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this is quoted as the scripture says, they'll look upon him whom they have pierced. We see that in John 19, for example, and I've heard those who don't believe the scripture saying, you see, that's already been fulfilled. They looked upon him whom they have pierced. That hasn't been fulfilled. All Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That hasn't happened yet. Say, well, they, he's already been pierced, and they looked upon him. In order for them to look upon him whom they have pierced, he has to have been pierced by them. And that's what's been fulfilled, not the looking upon in faith, but the piercing. And I'm so tired of those who don't believe the scriptures or those who would use the scriptures to destroy faith rather than build it. But that's no different than what the apostle faced 
also in Corinth. So there's a day coming when the children of Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced. Now we look in Zechariah chapter 13. Here we have a prophetic statement in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6. One shall say unto him, that is unto the Lord Jesus, this is to the to the one who's not a contemporary prophet, but who, the one who's gone before, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And now let me tell you something. The nation of Israel, that's the house of his friends. Oh, sure, there his enemies were there too, but also the house of his friends. Well, we're going to take up a little more of this after this break. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. Well, we'll complete this section here on Zechariah's prophecy as it corresponds to the teaching of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 toward the end here and we'll look also now at verse 7 of Zechariah 13 Awake O sword against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow saith the Lord of hosts smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones and it shall come to pass that in all the land saith the Lord two parts therein shall be cut off and die but the third shall be left therein and I will bring the third part through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and I will try them as gold is tried they shall call upon my name and I will hear them I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God well today uh, we have children of Israel not my people but there's a day when a two-thirds of the nation will be destroyed but one one-third of, of the children of Israel, you say, well, who are they? The Lord knows them that are his. Don't worry about that. But the third part, he'll bring through the fire. What's that fire? Well, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time of the great tribulation. Friends, that's not for me. That's not for th- that is for them. And in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, they are the they back to verse 15 and 16 but even unto this day when Moses is read the veil is upon their heart who's the they it's the children of Israel it is those who for whom the new covenant is intended we are ministers we have the same spirit as the spirit of the new covenant but we are not in that new covenant we are not under that new covenant that is a covenant as we looked at before that he will make with them in those days those days yet coming here this is not me this is them remember what first corinthians 10 taught us that we give no offense to anyone as believers in jesus christ neither to the jew nor to the gentile nor to the church of god three distinct groups jews gentiles church of god i am neither jew nor gentile i was once a gentile now i'm in the church of god Maybe you were once a Jew, and you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you are no longer a Jew. You are Church of God. Now, here we see that one day's coming when the veil will be taken away, when the heart of Israel turns to the Son of God with the very words that we see. They'll mourn as if he's their only begotten son. And, of course, they didn't receive him as the firstborn of Israel, but he died for them anyway. In due season, Christ died for all the world, especially also 
the nation of Israel. And don't you forget it, by the way, because it is a proper Christian affection to have the same affection for the nation of Israel, though in unbelief, though in enmity against our Lord Jesus Christ, to have the same affection that the Lord Jesus Christ had, and clearly here, by the way, that the Apostle Paul has. Well, now he says all that to tell us this, and this is verse 17 and 18, two of the great verses, really, in this epistle of Second Corinthians, and why we've spent a little bit of time on these final few verses of the third chapter. Now, the Lord is that Spirit. Now we go back to the ministration of the Spirit and how it is much more glorious than the ministration of the law. And he says, the Lord is that Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ministration of the Spirit. And of course, here we see the Lord Jesus Christ in in equivalency with the Spirit of God. And of course, we have the Lord Jesus Christ in equivalency with the Father as well. But here, what is being contrasted, uh, that does not mean uh, that there are not three persons in one God. There are. We do have a triunity. BibleStudy.net, we teach that. We hold to that. We'll fight you for that one. Now, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, that's the difference between law and the ministry of the Spirit. Where law is, there's not liberty, there's bondage. Where the law is, there's a veil upon the heart. The ministration of the law brings condemnation. The ministration of the Spirit brings life. It doesn't bring bondage, it brings liberty. So where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This corresponds now also with the parousia, or the great freedom of speech that we can have as believers. This doesn't mean that I won't have government action taken against me for whatever it is I say. That's not the freedom of speech of the Scripture. The freedom of speech of the Scripture is my sins are not upon me. I'm free to proclaim the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm free to look forward to glory. I'm unbonded. I'm unbonded. And that's, by the way, what the world system really hates the most, is a man free on the inside, boldly proclaiming uh, the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the great portion here, though, we see where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, but now the closing statement is verse 18, for which we'll spend the rest of our time discussing today, because verse 18 is one of these great promises of Scripture, one of these great disclosures of Scripture that I would that everyone who hears my voice would truly understand. But we all, we all, every child of God, everyone with a new nature, everyone who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all, not just Moses, but all of us, with open face, with an unveiled face. Moses had to veil his face. We have an unveiled face. There's not just one who beholds the Lord's glory. We all, with an unveiled face, behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We all have the privilege that Moses had, and then we have better than Moses. We have better. We have all the privilege of Moses. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It upsets me today that, that somebody would argue that 1 Corinthians 13 is for us today, uh, where it tells us we know in part, we prophesy in part, where it tells us in verse 12, we now see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Friends, now is then. We see the Lord face to face. He speaks to us as a man speaks to his friend. That's why we don't care to hold on to the charismatic 
gifts or wish that they were happening and wish it so much that they were happening that we make believe that they are because those aren't happening and we're not missing anything because they're not we all all with open face with an unveiled face behold as in a glass the glory of the lord well this is now not the supru of first corinthians 13 this is not the glass made of stone and bone uh, this is the clear glass this is as it were a glass that doesn't refract any light we clearly behold as in a clear glass the glory of the lord this is not something we view dimly this is not an enigma to us we know exactly who the lord jesus christ is he's not hiding he's not enigmatic he's here presented to us in his word and he's alive at the right hand of god and we don't have to look through a veil or look through a glass dimly uh, today we behold him as it says right here with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Well, let me talk a little bit about glass. We've talked about it before when we studied 1 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about it a little bit here today. The new nature looks at the Lord Jesus Christ by faith through the scriptures and sees him exactly as he is. This is the way he's presented to us. We see by faith and not by sight. That's why don't expect to see the Lord Jesus Christ in a movie. No man can portray him. Uh, and he doesn't look like that anymore. As the apostle told those uh, Corinthians and tells us in 1 Corinthians, though I knew Jesus Christ after the flesh, I don't know him that way anymore. We see him with the eyes of our understanding being opened, and we see him clearly through the scriptures, the eyes of our heart. We look at James, for example, how the natural man views things. The natural man, here's what it tells us about him uh, looking through a glass as he beholds himself. Here it tells us in verse 22, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Uh, for if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholds his natural face in a glass. Now here we have the natural man. We have the example of how we naturally look at ourselves. And here now is the asoptron. This is now the uh, unfulfilled adolescent form of glass, the uh, unperfected form of glass that is a bit of a dim thing. And it says this is like a man looking at his natural face in the glass, and he beholds himself, and he goes away, and straightway he forgets what manner of man he was. And that's why you have to continually look at yourself in the mirror. That's why you put mirrors all over your house. Uh, that's why you stop and look at mirrors uh, when you find them in stores and so forth. You forget what you look like. That's why you're shocked when you see a picture of yourself. You go, wow, I didn't know I was that handsome. Well, I didn't know my hair looked that good. Wow, I really am a snappy dresser. Uh, but then you forget about it and you have to go look again. Well, here is a different form of glass. It's a more perfect form of glass, and that's what the word means also in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all, with unveiled face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the ministry of the Spirit of God. Why are you looking for some great exterior sign and wonder? The ministry of the Spirit of God, the lasting ministry of the Spirit of God, is this mysterious work where we behold the Lord Jesus Christ as in a mirror or as in a glass. 
we look upon him through the eyes of our understanding opened in the scriptures and we are transformed into the same image this is the word metamorphomai this is the same word we find in Romans chapter 12 be ye not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind or the renewing of your heart well how is that we look through this perfect glass which by the way the perfect has come it is the word of god now this laid out very clearly for us very consistently for us we should just thank god we should just be excited well we should just learn to enjoy our bibles and of course that's part of what we want you to do here at biblestudy.net is to enjoy the great privilege that you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you, my friend, whether Jew or Gentile, getting jealous about this? Does this bother you that this foolish fella on the radio or on the internet is explaining to you out of the Old Testament what it means, explaining to you the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and just enjoying the fact that we have a new nature and that we can be transformed and that we have eternal life and that God is happy about all that? If that bothers you and provokes you, makes you jealous, it's supposed to. And so we're also happy about that. Here it is, changed into the same image from glory to glory. Now this also contrasts with Moses. He reflected the glory, but he didn't change, and it didn't last. And of course, he didn't go into the promised land. But friends, this is a better ministry. This is the ministry of liberty and not bondage. This is a lasting thing. We have a new nature on the inside. God will transform us. He is transforming us by faith. And finally, we will have discarded uh, the bodies of this sin and death, and we'll have new bodies, and it will all be very glorious. But don't you hope for that time that you won't be ashamed? I do. I don't want to be ashamed at that time. I don't believe you want to be ashamed at that time. We can have boldness today. More importantly, even, we can have boldness in that day when we rendezvous with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's what we have for today. Next time, we'll take up 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin there. Of course, it attaches therein too. Until that time, may God bless you in the meditation of His Word. I'm John Malone. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net.